morning, Kent Cove. It's good to see you all. My name is Corey. I am the lead pastor here at Kent Cove, and we are glad that you are with us. We are continuing this morning in our series uh, in the, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, Ephesians. We have this Sunday and next Sunday left in that series, and so um, we are closing that one out in just the next couple of weeks. But we are looking at today Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. We're not going to read the whole rest of this uh, chapter, but uh, we are going to talk about uh, all the way from 521 to the end of chapter 5, but we're just going to read at the beginning here um, through verse 33. It reads, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place a telling space where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Now, before we jump into this passage, I wanted to do a little Trinitarian theology with you, if we could. Everybody's really excited about that, I can tell. There was just like an audible, like the air left the room, right? And I used to feel the same way about Trinitarian theology, to be honest. It's, it's quite daunting, and I would not pretend to really fully understand the Trinity. And just uh, from my own perspective, anybody who claims that they do like completely understand it, you probably should run um, because it's really deep stuff. But the reason I want to talk about it is I was doing, I was working with this text and I remembered that uh, when I was working, uh, doing some classwork uh, on my um, doctor of ministry about 10 years ago, I was introduced to this theology of the Trinity that I don't really remember spending much time on when I was in seminary. Now, if you have grown up in the church or you've maybe done some biblical studies and that kind of thing, you have probably a very Western understanding of the Trinity, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and it's a hierarchical understanding of the way that Trinity works, right? And that's kind of just the the way people think about it oftentimes. But there's another way to think about the Trinity that comes from our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it's got a fancy Greek word that describes it. It's perichoresis, 
which I love that word. And if you recognize part of that word, we get our word choreography from that middle part of that word, the chore part. The, uh, it's that idea, because the idea behind perichoresis, the, the description or the theology of the Trinity that comes from this is really one of a dance. It's that the interplay of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, they're, they're constantly seeking to outlove and outserve one another. And it's this dance of love and service that, that then expands to include all of creation. And, uh, and the whole idea is that it's a moving, uh, living, beautiful dance. And I, I fell in love with that image. I just think it's so beautiful and it's so inviting. And the, and the idea is, is that that flow is part of uh, what we are invited into when we uh, receive Christ. When we become a part of the church, when we become a part of God's family, we're invited into that dance. Richard Rohr, uh, who is a Catholic priest, says that the divine, the divine flow either flows both in and out or it is not flowing at all. Right? So it's that idea of that love comes in and love goes out. Grace comes in and grace goes out. And so it's this constant, ever-moving um, flow, this dance of love and service and grace and mercy. And God invites his whole creation to join him in that dance. And I just was captivated by that. Now, we'll come back to that later, but... I do want to kind of take your temperature because we're in the middle of, like the, the passage I just read is, is rough, right? I mean, it, to our modern ears, I think uh, we can hear things maybe that, that rub us a little the wrong way. So as you sit there, what are your gut level reactions when you hear these verses, Right? What are your gut-level reactions? Well, there's a lot that plays into the way we respond to this idea of wives, submit to your husbands, right? Because depending on where we find ourselves, who we are, whether we're male or female, whether we're married or single, all of these things play into how we hear that verse, right? It also matters how we have heard it preached before. It matters uh, what theology that flows from those verses has been exercised on you, which also largely depends on whether or not you're a man or a woman, right? And so there's a lot that goes on here. And for men, quite frankly, perhaps it's, it's uh, not much. Maybe we don't feel uncomfortable with these verses at all because uh, sounds pretty good, right? Unless you, take it, unless you take the verses that follow seriously where, where Paul says that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You know, unfortunately, so often when we hear this text preached, we hear a lot of em emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? We hear a lot of wives submit. We don't hear so much about husbands uh, sacrificing themselves for their wives. We'll talk more about that as we go on. And I want to acknowledge that, that as I got to this text, I recognize and I, I approach it with some 
trepidation and a great deal of caution because, ladies, women, I recognize that there has been a lot of damage that has been done to women over the centuries because of a a misappropriation and poor theology that's flowed from this verse, right? Because there's this uh, way of reading these verses that can become very domineering and very damaging, and I want to acknowledge that. It also brings up another question that I think is really good for us to talk about as this is my second Sunday as officially lead pastor here. I want to just set some things uh, in kind of context in the way that I approach ministry in the way that I approach Scripture. And that's to answer this question, how do we read Scripture? Because quite honestly, friends, it would be very easy for me to just plow through this and to not really give it much pause. But I think we have to take these challenging texts when they're read in our context, and we have to do the hard work of understanding what those Scriptures mean. Not just what we've always thought they mean, not just what, what, you know, a patriarchal culture for the last 500 years has said they mean, but what, try to get to really the core of what Paul was actually saying in this text. Now, I'll be the first to warn you that, that this takes abstract thought. This takes a willingness to engage complexity. It takes a willingness to engage nuance. It takes a willingness to recognize that there are places where when we come at things from our very postmodern 21st century mindset, that it's very jarring to um, to our understanding of the world. But we have to dive into those places. We have to lean into it and do that work together. Because it's in, I think it's in those very texts that the Spirit can work to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus and transform our community more and more into the kind of place where people look and go, there's something going on there. There's something about this Jesus way of life that's important. And so as we dig into this text, I want to recognize, and I don't know who to attribute this statement to, but I love it. That it's important for us when we approach Scripture to recognize that Scripture was written for me, but Scripture was not written to me. Right? Scripture was written for me, but Scripture was not written to me. What do we mean by that? Well, anyone here fully versed and immersed in first century uh, Roman culture? Right? No, we're fully versed and immersed in 21st century American culture, or those of us who are Xers and above, perhaps 20th century American culture. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, where, that's our location. That's where we find ourselves. And so we understand a whole lot about the world, and if we're honest, Scripture, from that perspective. And if we don't do the hard work of taking off those glasses and putting on and and trying to see what Paul was actually saying to the church at Ephesus before we apply it to ourselves, then we find ourselves doing damage to our sisters because we come at this with a very domineering approach. Or some other text where we just lift it, rip it out of its context and don't do any work to try to understand what's actually happening in the text and just use it to uh, 
buttress our arguments or our favorite positions. So how do we engage Scripture? Well, we do that work. We recognize that there is context that we have to take into account. There's context in the text itself, which we're going to do a little work with this morning. When we read this part of Ephesians, we have to look at the rest of Ephesians to remember what it is that the argument that Paul's making, which, let's be honest, uh, Paul has a way of writing and thinking that is super dense, and there's not a misplaced word. And these arguments are weighted and theologically deep and difficult, and you have to slow down and really think about what it is that Paul's referring to because it's easy to just, you know, lose sight of that. So we have to pay attention to that textual context. We have to pay attention to cultural context, that idea of remembering that we are not first century Roman citizens. We do not live in that culture, and so we can't just, we can't fully understand unless we work really hard what, who it was that Paul was talking to and what the argument that he's making is, because it's, culture, it's bound in that culture. Now, I want to make the argument to my sisters in the room that perhaps you've heard this verse, these verses, and, you, and they've been used or you've heard them used in a way that you find uh, hurtful, damaging, abusive even. Or maybe you just find them uh, uh, quite unpalatable, depending on you know, your life experiences. But I want to make the argument just going to put this out there, that this text is actually an empowering word to women when we understand it correctly. But we'll come back to that. In order for us to understand this argument, what Paul is saying in this, what's called the household code, it's important to note as well that if we had kept reading, Paul would have gone on through the whole household, right? He starts with wives, then he goes to husbands, then he says children, then he talks about slaves, all of that, right? So it's, it's talking about the ordering of the whole kind of um, family life. But in order for us to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning of this chapter. And remember what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter. Do you remember what Paul said at the beginning of this chapter? Anybody? Be imitators of God, therefore. Right? He, he, he started this with this idea of imitating God's character of love. So in order for us to understand what Paul is talking about here, we have to remember that Paul is making this argument in the context of being imitators of God. Now, here's one of those places where we could easily just talk about love and, and come at it from a modern, you know, understanding. Because in reality, love, or at least for most of us, I think, the kind of common understanding of the word love in American English is a feeling word. It's a feeling word. It's about uh, how we feel about someone. But biblically, the word love is primarily an action word. It is something we do. It is a posture we take towards the world out of which we act. It's not just a feeling we have. It's, a, it's an action word. One of my mentors, uh, Jim Sundholm, a, a covenant pastor who 
Um, unfortunately, it uh, has joined the church triumphant at this point. But I remember him saying once early in my, my ministry that love is a verb. Love is a verb. In other words, love is something we do. So in, in Christian community, love is a commitment to each other's well-being, which is where we come back to the text for this morning. Love is a commitment to each other's well-being because oftentimes when we hear, at least when I was growing up and as you hear people have conversation about the, the verses that we read this morning, they always start in verse 22. They almost never start in verse 21 where they should because verse 21 sets the context for everything that comes after it. Now, if you want to go back to, to remember at the beginning of the summer when we did the, the reading of the whole letter of Ephesians, and if you, if you weren't here that Sunday, I encourage you to go online, go back and find that and watch it. So we did a reading of the whole letter of the, the Ephesians. I did take some artistic license when we did that reading. And if you'll remember, we read verse 21 four times. Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Because that sets the tone for everything that follows after it. And too often we ignored that verse and we went right into, wives, submit to your husbands. But Paul's whole argument is contingent on the idea that we all in the community of faith submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. So there is no power over, there is power together. There is no authority over, there is authority together. Because we all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, and if you need a reminder of what that looks like, what does submission looks like, look like, you can just go to the next letter in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, where Paul makes essentially what I would say submission, he makes the argument that submission is, the prioritizing, is prioritizing the well-being of others. Philippians 2, 3 to 5 reads like this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And then he goes on with, what, with a passage that's called the kenosis where he says, where he talks about how Jesus, though being in very nature God, took on the form of a human servant and, was, and, was, um, and submitted even to death on a cross out of love for the other, for us. That is the submission that Paul is talking about when he says, to the church in Ephesus, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Look to others' interests above your own. Serve one another. And then he goes on from there. But verse 21 sets the tone. It's all about mutual submission. All of us are to love and imitate God. All the way back to verse 1. Of chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore. All of us are to do that. And then in 21, all of us 
are to submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. It's important to recognize that this is the outworking of the Spirit's influence on our relationships. Remember, we've been talking um, prior to last week when we took a break, we were talking about how that looks, the outworking of the Spirit's work and influence in our lives. And Paul is making the argument that the outworking of the Spirit's influence in our lives is to submit one to another. One commentator says this, No one is to coerce another for all voluntarily except the discipline. Hence, any delusions of superiority are banished, and no one thinks of himself more highly than they ought. So, now as we get to this, wives submit your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church part, we can recognize that, first of all, it's starting from a position not of of hierarchy, but a position of mutuality. Everyone is choosing their place. And then I would make the argument that as we go on, that what Paul is doing here first is that marriage is uh, meant to be a retelling of the gospel story of love and submission. He's using the marriage relationship as a metaphor, right, for how it was that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her and, and retelling the gospel story in that way. And then we also should not miss that when we come to the end of that description, Paul goes off on kind of like, he kind of gets off on this rapturous uh, little side note. And all of a sudden he says, well, I'm not even talking about marriage. I'm talking about Christ and the church, which would be a good reminder for us, right? As we read this text, oftentimes we make it only about marriage. But Paul is using marriage as a metaphor for what Christ's relationship with the church is like. But now I want to just take a couple minutes and, and recognize some of what we ha- the work we have to do to understand what's going on here. So in this culture, in, in Roman culture, when Paul, the people to whom Paul is writing this letter, they are very well understand the, the way culture works, the way their, their society works. And it, and it looks, and it's a hierarchical culture, right? Um, you have the emperor, who they believed is the Son of God, right? In fact, many of our New Testament terms that we get that describe uh, even the word gospel comes from that culture. And it's talking about announcing the good news of the, of the new Caesar. And we co-opted that language and subverted it. We'll come back to that. But so you have the emperor who's the Son of God. He's at the top, right? And then you have your ruling elite, and then below them, you have men or who are the patriarchs, right? I'm, one of our favorite movies in, in uh, my house is uh, the movie Our Brother, Where Art Thou? Any, any fans? Okay, a few, all right. One of my favorite things about that movie is George Clooney uh, uh, com, um, repeating over and over again, I'm the paterfamilias. Like he's having to remind himself and everybody around him that he's in charge. I'm the paterfamilias. I'm at the top of the heap. I'm supposed to be setting the rules. And then his wife would always be saying, well, I've counted to three, right? <laughs> so we know who actually was boss. But, but men in this culture, were, they were the patriarchs. And what they said and what they believed and what they did, that held for their entire household. There was no questioning it. 
right? Then below the men were women, and then below women were children and slaves, okay? That's the way it worked. That was the pecking order, and there was, there was no questioning it. That is how things worked. It's also important to remember that in this culture, marriage was a business or power transaction, okay? Marriage was a business or power transaction. It was all about status and wealth and, and making a good marriage, right? So as if you were a, you know, if you were a ruling elite, you want to marry, you want to find a wife who is going to elevate your status or enrich you, right? The woman did not have a say in that arrangement, right? That's just the way it was. And so uh, that's the reality that Paul is speaking into. Also should be noted, most, maybe some of you would recognize this, but the average age of a Roman man when, he, when they got married was, was their early 30s. The average age of a Roman bride was a woman or girl about 14 or 15 years old. Ick, exactly, right? I mean, it's like, for us, that just sounds gross and wrong. And even maybe a little predatory, right? And it's, but that was the culture that they were in. That's who Paul was talking to. And so when Paul and the household, and then what Paul is doing then is subverting the household codes. Paul is taking, in the way he's describing Christian marriage, he is taking a radical departure from Roman cultural norms. He's taking the household codes of, of Roman society, and he's subverting them. Because do you think in Roman culture that this young 30-whatever-something man had any interest in giving up his life to, uh, to love and serve to the point of death this 14- or 15-year-old uh, bride? It just wasn't in their wheelhouse, right? And so Paul is taking in this um, the way he's describing marriage, and he's subverting this household code. Paul's one definition of headship, right, which is the whole basis of this, the man as the head of the household, is sacrificial service. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He went to the cross for it. That's a radical departure from the cultural norm of Paul's day. And so what we, unfortunately, what has happened in the middle of, of you know, church history is that we kind of lost sight of how radically different that form of marriage was, and it just became another uh, excuse for patriarchal, uh, sometimes abusive treatment and, sub, and, um, and um, oppression of women, Right? because they were to uh, submit to their husbands. They were not to speak. They were to, you know, which is not doing that work to understand what Paul was actually saying. Because the, what Paul is proposing here is a radical diff, radically different approach than what was understood in Roman culture. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point, what did the Trinity have to do with this? <laughs> Well, here's my, here's my stab at it, right? As I'm reading this and I'm looking at the way this, this 
marriage relationship, this metaphor that Paul is laying out is supposed to look, I was struck by the idea that it looks an awful lot like that perichoretic image of the Trinity, right? Wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, and on and on and on. It is not a power above approach. It is a mutual love and service continually dancing in and out and expanding, right? And then as you read the rest of that code, then that dance would expand to the rest of the household. We don't have time this morning to talk about the difference, the radical departure that what Paul says about slaves here is, right? And also, side note, just to be clear, the slavery that we see in the New Testament was of a different sort than the slavery that we experienced in America, okay? Slavery in Rome was generally not chattel slavery like what we had here, okay? So just just a side note. So then the question becomes, as it always does, how then shall we live? What does this have to do with how we live our lives? Well, I think it begs us to ask the question, do our lives tell this same story of the gospel that Paul is laying out in these verses? Do our lives tell the story of mutual submission, of seeking to outlove and serve one another, right? What Paul ultimately have in, has in view here isn't even primarily about marriage, but it's about the community of the church, which is why he started in 21 with everyone, all of you, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Then he describes Christian marriage, and then at the end of that description, he says, I'm not even talking about marriage, I'm talking about Christ in the church, right? And so it's this image of this perichoretic community, this community of a dance of love and service, of grace and mercy that seeks to outdo one another in showing honor, in showing love, in submitting to each other. So I want to recognize, as I said at the beginning, to my, especially to my sisters in the room, that much damage has been done by overextending this metaphor of marriage here used by Paul and not correctly understanding or, or perhaps intentionally or unintentionally leaving out verse 21, right? And taking this as a, you know, just laying that patriarchal um, society down through time, right? That the, that the husband is always the head. You don't question, they make all the decisions. When in reality, it's a mutual submission arrangement. Paul was clearly speaking here to the whole community. And as a single person himself, recognized the ethic of servant leadership he was putting forward. That's the other thing we have to remember. From all indications that we have, Paul was single himself. And so when he's talking about marriage as a metaphor, he's not, he's not elevating that state to be above all other states. He's recognizing and using it as a metaphor to show what the community should live like. Now, all of this, of course, is in the context of this letter to the Ephesians. And it's important to remember that this is Paul working out the way this new Jesus humanity that he's been talking about since the very beginning of this letter, 
right? Remember, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, right? This new humanity, this new Jesus people who, who declared that, oh, Caesar is Lord? No, 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 no. Jesus is Lord, right? This subversive, um, this subversive community that the Roman culture could not figure out because they were doing all this stuff that made no sense, right? They were doing things like saying Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. They were doing things like saying, oh, uh, wives, submit to your husband, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and even give yourself up for them, right? And so this, this manifestation of this new humanity that Paul's been talking about, it's a radical departure a radically new way of understanding how we live our lives. Not different people, not Jews and Greeks, not slave or free, but one people. So this whole chapter is a radical declaration of the new order and kingdom instituted by Jesus. A kingdom of shalom where God's people seek to imitate the life-giving dance of love and service that exists in God's very nature, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. May it be so in our midst. Amen.